0: Well, good morning. Come on in and grab a seat. If you're wondering why it's dark in the back, it's because we're trying to get you to sit towards the front. So you guys are doing a great job. Don't sit, in the, don't, don't be people of the darkness we've learned in 1 John, but rather walk in the light, which is up here towards the stage. And uh, typically, so uh, something that we've done for years to kick off theological equipping is we usually have one of our elders pray for us. We decided last week, though, that it was really hard to hear in this room. And so when somebody prays, it will be like, God and everybody's kind of straining, and then nobody says amen. The, uh, the uh, battle cry is indistinct, as 1 Corinthians would say, and we cannot give our amen. And so let me open us with a word of prayer, and then we will get into presuppositions. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for just your overwhelming grace and your overwhelming kindness, and we just ask that you would bless this time. We pray that we would honor you with our minds, that we would honor you with our thinking, that we would be equipped to push back what is evil in the world, to give a response to those who ask for the hope that's in us, that we might take uh, every thought captive and that we might uh, destroy lofty arguments and everything that's raised against a knowledge of Christ. So would you be with us? In Christ's name, amen. All right, well today, we're gonna be talking about presuppositions and presuppositionalism, which is an entire way of doing apologetics. This semester, we are doing defending the faith, what's called apologetics, and also gonna be talking about different world religions so that you can engage with your lost neighbor and uh, destroy them in an argument. I'm kidding, so that you can win them for the gospel, uh, which sometimes does involve destroying them in an argument, and so we're learning how to think critically and how to uh, defend our faith this semester. And today, we're gonna be talking talking about something that flies under the radar, okay? If you are married and you've ever had an argument with your spouse, which is a big part of marriage, a lot of it is probably due to what are called presuppositions, okay? Presuppositions are these underlying assumptions, these, uh, these things that you just take into an argument that you haven't made explicit. So if my wife and I are arguing about who left the, the cap off of the toothpaste, if we step back, we realize, wait a second, this isn't about the toothpaste at all this is about the fact that I've been mad for a long time and I haven't told you because for whatever reason, and there's this deeper thing going on underneath the surface. And so what presuppositions do is they help us uh, look at those things that are flying under the radar. They help us look at those things that are under the surface. And so let me give you several definitions, okay? Because this is not something we talk about a lot. Like you don't usually go to work and somebody's like, tell me your presuppositions in your interview or something. And so let me give you some definitions of presuppositions. Some of these are academic definitions and then some of them are made up, but they'll stick. Okay, first, a thing assumed beforehand at the beginning of a line of argument or course of action, okay? A thing assumed beforehand. By the way, if you are, have trouble with the term presuppo- presupposition, which I just stuttered over, so I apparently have problems with it, you could just use the word assumption. That's kind of the same idea. An initial assumption that serves as the ground or beginning of an argument. To suppose or assume beforehand to take for granted in advance. Or as Karl Brower will sometimes say, it's what you think before you think, okay? Or as I will sometimes say, what is a presupposition? It's something you suppose pre, okay? Always to help you remember this. So for example, what are some things you have to presuppose Before you can test that water boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit. By the way, that is the the temperature uh, on, you know, normal altitude, sea level or whatever that you can get water to boil if there's not a bunch of things in the water. What are some things you have to assume to even test that? That water will boil at all. What else? That heat, what? That heat exists. That's a good one. You do have to suppose that heat exists. What else? (laughs) that heat is hot, that you exist, that you're not in a dream, that your thermometer's working correctly, that you have a stove, all kinds of things. You see, there is no way to prove every single aspect anytime you're proving one thing. You have to bring these assumptions, you have to bring these presuppositions to the table to even begin the process, okay? To even begin the process. So let me give you some examples. I've given you definitions, but we as humans learn more from illustration and example than we do from uh, just pure academic definitions. So let me give you some examples of presuppositions. I've left a big section on your notes there where you can take notes if you would like for this, but I'll give you a few presuppositions. Uh, when we first were talking about uh, logical argumentation and, and how to interpret the Bible and these kind of things, I had a uh, young man who used to be a, uh, someone here at the church that was in the youth. He has uh, moved on now, he's older. And I said, I need a volunteer. And so he raised his hand and I had him come up in the uh, stage in the chapel. And I said, here's what I want you to do. I gave him a marker in front of the whiteboard and I said, I want you to draw exactly what I tell you to draw. No more and no less. It's like God's word. You don't get to add to it or take from it. Just draw exactly what I tell you to draw, no more and no less. I said, do you have, you got it? And he said, yeah, I've got it. I said, okay, I want you to draw this. <clears throat> Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. So he comes up and he draws a wall and he draws Humpty Dumpty and he gives him a big smiley face and he gives him little legs hanging over the wall and he draws, and it's a pretty good drawing, Okay. And so then I say to him, why did you draw Humpty Dumpty as an egg? I didn't say he's an egg. Let this blow your mind. The nursery rhyme doesn't say he's an egg. Nowhere in the nursery rhyme does it say he's an egg. It just says there's this guy named Humpty Dumpty, which is a terrible name, and he falls off and gets slaughtered. That's the point of the story. Tell your children before they go to bed. This is the kind of stories we read, okay? There's nothing in the story that says he's an egg. I didn't say he's an egg, and yet he drew an egg. Why? Why? because you can't see your own presuppositions very well, and so he just presupposed it. I've always thought of him as an egg. All the pictures of the nursery rhyme when I was a kid, they didn't wanna draw some guy who cracked his head open, so they drew him as an egg, and he's got a crack and a little Band-Aid on it or something, and that's what he is presupposing. Let me give you another one that uh, Carl and I were talking about a couple weeks ago as we were eating at Whataburger because your body's a temple. (laughs) There was a farmer who had a dog. How's the rest of it go? And Bingo was his name Oh, Is that talking about the farmer or the dog? There was a farmer who had a dog, and the farmer's name was Bingo. You see, the song doesn't tell you. You assume it's a dog because that's the last word you said, but the farmer's name could be Bingo. The rest of the song gives you no new information. It just spells Bingo a thousand times. That's the song, okay? And so we just assume that's the dog's name, but we don't know for sure. We don't even ask that question. Okay? It probably is the dog. Whoever wrote that probably is intending that, but we just assume it. We don't actually have a way of stopping and saying, am I thinking about this correctly? Let me give you another one. This shows how, uh, how we think about economics as Americans. If I worked for Apple, let's say I get hired as the CEO for Apple. I don't think they would hire me. They're not looking for a systematic theologian, but let's say they hire me and uh, I'm sitting in front of the board or I'm sitting in front of the shareholders or whatever and they say, Zach, how much money are we gonna make next year? And I say, let's just make the same amount of money we made last year because that worked pretty good. Am I gonna get fired? Probably. There's this assumption that is, you're not succeeding in business unless you're making more money than the previous year. Now, here's what's so crazy. That idea doesn't exist for most of Western history. If you make shoes during the Reformation, you know how many shoes you're gonna make? The same that you made last year because that kept you alive and you had your family, so you make your shoes and you go home and you spend time with your family. The idea that you're only succeeding if it goes higher and higher and higher is a new idea in world history, but for us, it's just assumed. It's so assumed that I would be fired from that job just for recommending that we keep doing what's already worked, okay? It's a presupposition. I gave this example when we talked about, uh, talked about uh, ethics. Imagine that there is on this boat, three different people, okay? There's a little girl. Let's say she's three. She's adorable. However adorable you're thinking in your mind, she's like 10 times more adorable than that. Cute little girl. There's a president that you like. Okay? So pick a president you like, because if you pick one you don't like, that doesn't work for the illustration. But there's some president that you like. Okay, there's the president of the United States, and there is a 90-year-old man with cancer. Okay? And they all fall into the water, and you can only rescue one. Who do you rescue? Who do you rescue? Now, when I ask that question, some people will say, Zach, you rescue the little girl. She has the most life left to live, She's just so adorable. She's just a kid. She's so innocent, not theologically, but socially, right, legally. Others say, well, you've got to rescue the president because he has the most important job. He's one of the most important people, if not the most important person in the world. You've got to rescue the president. But nobody has ever said the 90-year-old man with cancer. Do you know why? Because we have been so influenced as Americans by what is called pragmatism and what is called utilitarianism, that we have a tendency to assess something's value based on how well it works, how much time it has left. In God's mind, all three of those lives are equally equal. God cares about the life of this because he's made man in his image. He cares about the life of the present. He cares about the life of this old man. But we have a tendency to say, certainly not the old man. He's less valuable because he has less life to live. He's gonna die anyway. This is one of the reasons that we as Christians are against euthanasia, It's not about whether or not the person is suffering or whatever, life is valuable and it's not just valuable based upon age or capacity or something like that but this isn't something we typically think about. We just instantly pick the girl or the president. We never stop to question our presuppositions. I had a New Testament professor ask me this, we were talking about presuppositions because I was submitting a uh, a potential thesis to him for doctoral work and he said to me, Zach, no matter how much research you did, would you ever come to the conclusion that Jesus isn't God? And I said, well, no, because Jesus is God. And he says, now think about what you just said. You just ended where you began. You started believing that Jesus was God, and then that would color all of your research. No matter how much research you did, you would come to the conclusion that Jesus is God. You ended where you began before you even did any research. He said, conversely, if you didn't think Jesus was God, no matter how much research you do, you're not gonna come to that conclusion. When an atheist starts out saying Jesus isn't God and then does all the research, guess what they conclude? That Jesus isn't God. So your presuppositions will determine everything else. You will end where you began. Notice that we do this in politics, we do this in our society. We already have a position, and then we go look online for articles that support our position and act like that's research, okay? Okay. We don't do all the things that are against our position. We don't go read dissertations against our position or uh, any peer-reviewed journals against our position. What we do is we start with our position and then say, how can I make this case as strong as possible? These are all presuppositions, okay? Presuppositions, let me ask this. When there is a police shooting that happens, before you even have any facts, people have already decided where they land on that issue. The officer was innocent or the officer was maybe being racist or whatever it is, before the facts have come out before he's gone to trial, before we have any information, we just assume one way or the other what we already wanted to assume. We just saw this with the recent uh, impeachment trial. People that had already assumed that Trump was uh, guilty had already assumed that, and then people that thought that he would be exonerated had already assumed that. We end where we begin. This is what's so difficult, is we don't just come to information unbiased. We come to information wanting it to say what we already want it to say, and we're not even aware of it, and then we bend the evidence to fit our pre-established ideas, okay? Our pre-established ideas. The following question has some presuppositions. You ever heard the uh, loaded question, have you stopped beating your wife? Ever heard that phrase? What's the problem with that question? Uh, I'm sorry, I can't tell if everyone just like uh, fell asleep. What was that? What was that? It presupposes that you're beating your wife. You haven't proved it, you're asking a question and to even engage in that question is to already give your opponent something you might not want to give them, okay? So sometimes people ask me, they'll say, Zach, answer me this question, yes or no? And they'll ask a question, I'm like, I'm not trying to be slippery, I can't answer that question yes or no because the way you phrase the question already locks me into a worldview that I don't agree with, okay, stop trying to trap me and trying to trick me with your uh, presuppositions. I'll give you another presupposition. Uh, I grew up in a a church that thought it was wrong to have musical instruments in worship. I obviously don't hold that anymore. But uh, when I would ask why as a kid, they would say, because there are no musical instruments mentioned in the New Testament. That's what they would say. Now, not only is that not true, right? The angels blow trumpets and these kind of things. But it presupposes that for something to be allowed, it has to be said explicitly in the New Testament. Is that how we do theology? No, you can do things unless the Bible forbids them. It's not that the Bible explicitly has to allow them for you to do them or else you couldn't drive a car and you couldn't have air conditioning and you couldn't preach behind a music stand or whatever it might be, okay? So it's that we're allowed to do things unless the Bible forbids it, not the other way around. Now I'll end with one more example of a presupposition because it's a joke about pirates, okay? So what you do is you take a little kid and you say this, what kind of movies does a pirate like to see? Rated R, right? And then you say, uh, where does a pirate go after work? The bar. What does a pirate drive to work? And people say, a car. No, a ship, right? A ship. What is a pirate's favorite letter? Not R, the sea. That's right, yeah, whoever said that, right. So these are all presuppositions. You start hearing the word R, that sound, and so you just assume that uh, that's what the pirate's gonna say for the last one, and then you trick them right? Then you trick them. It's like when you rhyme a bunch of things with the word silk, and then you ask a little kid, what does a cow drink? And they say milk. You're like, nope, water, right? You just start priming the pump, and then you lead them where they don't want to go. Now, here's what you need to know for the next point here. You cannot get rid of your presuppositions, Okay? You cannot get rid of There's a very famous article by a, a New Testament scholar named Rudolf Boltmann called, Is Exegesis Without Presuppositions Possible? And he really popularized this idea that you cannot read the Bible, talk to people, whatever it is, anything in life, without getting rid of your presuppositions. Okay? You cannot get rid of your presuppositions. Let me give you an example here. Even if you say, Zach, this whole lecture is stupid, and I don't like all this philosophy stuff. I, I, don't, I don't even think I have presuppositions. If you say I don't have presuppositions, here's what you've already presupposed. A few things. One, that you are speaking. Two, that I can hear you. Three, that we both know English. Four, that your words have meaning. Five, that I am a human. Five, six, that I exist. Seven, that your position is not a contradiction. That not having presuppositions is possible. You cannot get rid of presuppositions, okay? Even to say I don't have presuppositions is a presupposition. It supposes pre all these other things, okay? There is no getting rid of presuppositions. Here's all you can do. You can be aware of your presuppositions. You can be aware of your presuppositions. Imagine that we have the whiteboard up here, which is easy to imagine because we do, and y'all have on different colored glasses. Some of you have on blue glasses. Some of you have on uh, green tinted glasses. Some of you, if you're more of a positive, optimistic person, maybe you have rose-tinted glasses, whatever it is, okay, and I say, tell me what color the whiteboard is. You're not able to see the whiteboard without those glasses. Those glasses are epoxied to your face, and you cannot take them off. There is no way for you to actually see that the whiteboard is white. You see it as green or blue or rose-colored or whatever it is, okay? You can't take off the glasses. So how on earth can we get to the fact that the whiteboard is actually white? It's through knowing the color of your glasses. It's through asking other people, what color glasses do I have? It's through you looking at somebody else, right? So if you have yellow glasses and someone has blue glasses and it kind of looks like they're wearing green, you're able to dialogue and you're able to know what color glasses each of you are wearing. So you can't get rid of your presuppositions. You can only be aware of what they are. And to do that, you typically need other people. You need to ask other people, what do they see that you don't see? This is one of the reasons why at Parkway, we always push church history. People in church history are wearing very different colored glasses than we are today and it helps us to be able to see what color other people's glasses are so that we can get rid of, uh, uh, well, not get rid of, but so we can be aware of some of our presuppositions. So let me give you some questions to help you. So you say, okay, Zach, we want to get to the whiteboard, that's objectively white, but we've got these glasses that we can't take off, they are presuppositions, how do we come to truth? How do we come to truth? Well, we be aware… That we are wearing these different colored glasses and here are some questions that you can ask yourself to help you be aware of your presuppositions let's do this generally and then when it comes to scripture first what do i already think is true next time you're wrestling with some political issue some social issue some theological issue ask yourself what do i already think is true because if you're already starting with that you're probably not being as objective as you think you are why do i think what i think okay So when I, second ago, when I said you'd get fired if I, or I'd get fired if I was the CEO of Apple, why do I think that? Well, the reason is because I've grown up in a culture that pushes pragmatism, which equals whatever works the best is what's good. That's not a philosophical position that anybody held until the 1900s, but we just assume that that's the case. It's just the air we breathe. Here's a great question for your presuppositions. What do I want to be true You wanna really know where your heart is wicked and it wants to twist the information to help you believe what you already hold? Ask yourself, what do I want to be true? When you're arguing with somebody about what a text in the Bible means, what do you want it to say, okay? What am I afraid is true? We have a tendency not to confront our fears but to try to run from them. And so if you ask yourself this question, what am I afraid is true? That's a great question to ask to be aware of your presuppositions. How has my thinking been affected by the culture Language, time period, and political climate in which I live. This is a great one. What experiences do I have that might cause me to think a certain way? Okay? What experiences do I have that might cause me to think a certain way? There's this kind of weird thing going on in biblical studies right now where we assume that to get a correct interpretation of the Bible, we need as many different viewpoints as possible which doesn't make any sense to me of trying to understand a Jewish male 2,000 years ago under Roman domination. I don't understand how bringing a bunch of modern 21st century worldviews actually helps you do that. I actually think that they get in the way. What have people in different periods of world history thought about this issue? That's a great question. With what groups do I identify that could cause me to skew information? With what groups do I identify that could cause me to skew information? These are good questions that you should ask the next time you're thinking through an important issue. You're thinking through a big issue. You're thinking through a political, you're you're thinking through a family issue, okay? When you think, I don't want to spank my kids because that seems mean. How have people done it all throughout the rest of world history? Oh, through spanking. Maybe that's a chance where you can question some of your presuppositions and maybe you aren't the first person to come upon truth in the world. Now here's some questions that help challenge your theological presuppositions. So these ones are specifically related to theology, interpreting the Bible, etc. What do I already think this text means? There are pastors that will build out their entire series of what they're gonna preach on with titles before they've even studied that book. We don't do that at Parkway. You know what we do at Parkway? We pick a book of the Bible and assign certain texts and we have no idea what we're gonna be preaching on until we start studying it. Because if you assume what the text already means, you're just gonna craft your sermon around that. You've already assumed the meaning, you've already given it a title, you can't change it now, you've already published it, you've already sent it to the people of the church, so now you've gotta bend the text into saying what you want it to say. There's a joke that I heard people say in uh, studying theology which was, man, I've got a great sermon, now I just need a text to preach it from, right? You don't wanna do that. Number two, what do I hope this text means? Number three, what worldview differences does the author have that are different from mine? I really like number four. Is there anything in this text that seems strange to me? If there's something in the Bible that seems strange to you or weird or why did they say that, that is a great indicator of where your worldview and the biblical worldview does not match up. We were joking about this when we talked about how to interpret the book of Revelation. It'll talk about the measurement that the angel is using to measure the new Jerusalem. And it says, because an angel's measurement is the same as a human measurement. And I'm like, well, that's really helpful. Right? You don't have to go to like Angel Home Depot if you need a new ruler or something like that. It's all the same. Why would they say that? And then they say things like the angel, the one that has authority over fire, and it just moves on. You're like, oh, of course, of course. I didn't know they were like Pokemon and some of them had fire and some of them had water. But it just says that. It's a place where our worldview is off. What are all the things this text could possibly mean, whether I think these interpretations are likely or not? One of the things I'll do in preparing for a sermon is as I'm studying the text, I will summarize in my own words what I think the text is about, and then I will go back and I will try to interpret that text in as many different ways as I can so I can see all the possible options. Whether they're right or not, whether they're likely or not, I want to see what all the options are so then I can pick the best option. Number six, again, a great question. What am I afraid this text means? What am I afraid this text means? Number seven, what do other Christians think this text means? And number eight, what have Christians living at other times in church history thought this text means? These are all helpful questions to help you see your presuppositions. Okay, time for a review. Who can give me a definition without looking at your notes of a presupposition? Something you suppose pre, my definition, okay? Excellent, A plus, a gold star uh, for that one. Uh, that's good. Okay, can you get rid of your presuppositions? No. What can you do? You can be aware of them. How are you going to be aware of them if you only see the glasses that are epoxied to your face? Ask other people. Find out what other people have thought throughout church history. Good, those are good. Those are good answers with the, the, the mumbles and the, uh, some of the answers that I heard. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the burden of proof because this is something that is extremely misunderstood, okay? Extremely misunderstood by just about everybody, okay? When someone is making an argument, people are not always coming to that argument equally. Sometimes the burden of proof is on you and not the other person. If the burden of proof is on you, the other person doesn't have to prove their argument. It's the default. You have to prove the idea that you're putting forward. Okay, so do I get to do this? Do I get to come up to you and I get to say to you, prove to me that unicorns don't exist? Do I get to say that to you? What's the problem if I come up to you and say, I'm gonna assume that unicorns exist and it's your job to prove to me that they don't? I've reversed the burden of proof. Most people assume unicorns don't exist. They don't exist. I've come up and I've acted like my position is the default and you have to somehow disprove it. That's backwards. What you should do is you should say to me, no, 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 Zach, you are switching the burden of proof. The default normal position, the majority position, the position that everyone has held is that there are no unicorns. It's your job, Zach, to prove that a unicorn does exist. Okay? What people will do is they won't, they won't before they get into an argument, stop and say, who actually has to prove their case? What's the default and who is making the new case? Okay? Sometimes you'll hear this when people use this phrase. They'll say, I'm not convinced by that argument. You'll hear that a lot. You'll give, a, you'll give a presentation, you'll say something, and someone will say, I'm not convinced by that. That is a shifting of the burden of proof. What they're saying is, my position doesn't have to be proven, it's the standard, and you haven't convinced me of your argument, so therefore you need to try better. They haven't stopped and realized, wait a second, are they actually promoting a position that they need to defend, okay? You see this a lot, we've said, with church history. Why do we like church history? What church history does is it gives you the default. Church history is not always right? Luther's view of justification is novel and more biblical than the Roman Catholic view, but he has to overcome 1500 years of interpretation. Your interpretation of the Bible has to be so good that you can overturn church history. So church history is usually right, but there are places it's wrong, but the burden of proof is on you if you're putting forward a new position to overturn what has been taught throughout church history. Let me give you another shifting of the burden of proof. If someone were to come to you and say, Where does the Bible say you can drink whiskey? Do you see what they've done? They've shifted the burden of proof. The burden of proof is on them to say you can't drink whiskey ever, or something like that as a Christian. But what they've done is they've flipped it. They've said, unless you can show me the word whiskey, which by the way you can with the idea in Hebrew of strong drink, but unless you can show me the word of whiskey, then all of a sudden the burden of proof is on you. It's bad to do this, unless you can prove, and what they've done is they've shifted the burden of proof. So here's what you always have to ask when dealing with burden of proof stuff. You have to ask this, who is presenting a position and whoever is presenting a position has to defend their position. Most arguments, both sides have to present a position. There are arguments where the burden of proof is on both people. That was my example of using the, I'm not convinced by that argument. You have to give an argument, they have to give an argument. Neither one of them is the default. You both have to support your case, whatever it might be. Now, now that we've talked about presuppositions, which we've gone over a little bit in the past, now let me give you what is new and why we're dealing with this when it comes to apologetics. There is an entire way of doing, defending the faith, there's an entire way of doing apologetics called presuppositionalism. Presuppositionalism, okay? This is a unique, reformed way of doing apologetics. What is the view of modern-day Reformed Christians, when it comes to apologetics, I'm about to give it to you, and it is called presuppositionalism, okay? Let me give you a definition of this from John Frame. He says, a belief that takes precedence over another and therefore serves as a criterion for another. An ultimate presupposition is a belief over which no other takes precedence. For a Christian, the context of Scripture must serve as his ultimate presupposition. This doctrine is merely the outworking of The uh, the merely the outworking of the lordship of God in the area of human knowledge, I'm sorry, human thought, it merely applies the doctrine of scriptural infallibility to the realm of knowing, okay? So let me describe it this way. Throughout the rest of the semester, the type of apologetics we've been doing is what's called evidentialism. We give you these reasons why you should believe in Christianity. So let's pretend for a second that we're an atheist. Here's the cosmological argument. Let's pretend for a second that we're an atheist, here is the, where we got the Bible. Let's pretend for a second that we're an atheist, here is the ontological argument, or whatever it is. What we've been doing is we've been giving you evidences as if you're some neutral observer and you can just reason to God through those evidences. Everybody with me so far? What presuppositionalism will say is that you never get to do that, that that is an un-Christian way of thinking, okay? Okay. The presuppositionalist does not like traditional proofs for God's existence. It does not like you trying to prove scripture. Why? Because it puts God in the dock. It makes it where God is on the defense and God never gets to be on the defense. God is always on the offense because he is God. So what the presuppositionalist will say is this. There is no neutral ground that you can pretend that you're standing on to make an argument. So so let me give it this way. Here's how most, if you've ever watched a debate between like a Christian theologian and an atheist, here's how it works. The Christian theologian says, I'm gonna lay aside my Christian presuppositions and I'm gonna step over here to this morally neutral third ground and I'm just not gonna have my presuppositions and I'm just gonna think rationally. I'm gonna pretend like I'm not a Christian for a second, okay? And then the atheist who's over here says, you know what, I'll do that. I'll pretend for a second that I don't know that God doesn't exist. I'll pretend for a second that I'm not an atheist and I'll step onto this ground with you, Christian, and we'll both lay our presuppositions aside and we'll both argue from this morally neutral ground towards each other so that we're just doing logic and we're just thinking rationally. What the presuppositionalist will say is that that is impossible. You cannot do that. Not only is it impossible, it's unfaithful. For you to be a Christian and to try to reason as if the Bible's not true, for you to be a Christian and to try to reason as if the God of the Bible is not true, is unfaithful. If God is true, can you step away from that source of truth to make an argument for his truthfulness? And the presuppositionalist will say, no. You cannot pretend to argue as if Christianity is not true if it is true, okay, if it is true. It's like acting, it's like if you were gonna prove something in math, and you said, let me forget all the rules of math for a second, and now let me prove to you some math. You have to step away from the very source of truth to be able even to prove that. What the presuppositionalists will say is that our minds are so infected by sin that we cannot reason to God. We certainly can't reason to the God of the Bible. We might come up with some generic, powerful being, but we can't reason to the God of the Bible just from our intellects because our intellects are broken and they're warped by sin. You don't get to do that. So let's use this example. Let's say, because I'm a Christian, I have a redeemed mind, I have a 12-inch ruler, a 12-inch truth ruler, right? Why am I saying it's a 12-inch ruler? Because that's how long a ruler is, okay? Now let's say over here, there's the non-Christian whose mind is still warped by sin, who still belongs to the devil. Because his mind is warped by sin, his truth ruler is only 10 inches. So he has a 10-inch ruler, I have a 12-inch ruler, and we're looking at blueprints for a house, Are we at all gonna build the same house? Yeah, only to scale, but not actually the same house. Because if one is smaller and one is bigger, it's not the same house, okay? The same thing is happening when it comes to arguing about God or God's existence or anything. When the Christian, the Christian has a redeemed mind that the non-Christian does not have, so they're not gonna see things the same. Why can a Christian scientist look at the stars and say, what brilliance from God? Whereas an atheistic scientist look at the stars and says, what random chaos. They're looking at the same evidence, the same blueprint, but they don't come to the same conclusions because one has a 12-inch ruler and one has a 10-inch ruler. There's a sense in which the presuppositionalist, once you go up to the atheist and say, I could try to prove God's existence to you, but until you're regenerate, you're not gonna be able to see it anyway. Until you have a better ruler, I'm wasting my time. I'm casting my pearls before swine. What you need is the gospel to transform you. You don't need evidences that you can't reason to correctly anyway. So even if an atheist is trying to reason to natural causes, they're still assuming God's existence, the presuppositionalists will say, right? So if I'm I'm an atheistic materialistic scientist and I start talking about the reason why mankind wants to reproduce, I've assumed order. I've assumed teleology. I've assumed purpose. I've assumed God. As soon as I start talking about logical conclusions, I've assumed the source of all logic, God. As soon as I talk about natural causes and causations, I've I've assumed the source of all causation, God. And so what the presuppositionalists will say is even the atheist throughout their entire argument is having to appeal to a God they don't believe in, okay? To a God they don't believe in. Cornelius Van Til, one of the founders of Westminster Seminary that broke off of Princeton Seminary is very famous for saying this when it comes to presuppositionalism. The only proof for the existence of God is that without God, you couldn't prove anything. The only proof for the existence of God is that without God, you couldn't prove anything, okay? Now, let me tell you what I like about presuppositionalism and then what I don't think is right about it, okay? I am very uh, sympathetic towards presuppositionalism as an apologetic. I think it's primarily right. It seeks to do justice to God. It seeks to do justice to Scripture. It realizes that you can't step away from your presuppositions, etc. Here's where I think they go off the rails a little bit. Your mind is warped by sin in a way that you cannot properly know God, the Trinitarian, infinite God of the Bible. But your mind is not so warped that you cannot know any truths, right? And if you don't believe me, notice that the Apostle Paul does that. The Apostle Paul will play devil's advocate right? So whereas the presuppositionalists will say, you don't get to pretend for a second like you're not a Christian. Paul does that when he says, if the resurrection hasn't happened, pretend that for a second, then our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. It seems like the apostle Paul is willing to play a little devil's advocate for the sake of argument, to pretend like what he holds isn't true, though it is true, to do that. Or when he's appealing to the, uh, the pagans in Acts, he doesn't just say, well, I'm just gonna quote to you scripture and you better learn to figure it out because I can't step away from it. He quotes Aratus and Epimenides and he quotes their pagan philosophers and poets. So I think presuppositionalism is a little overstated. Let me tell you what I really like about it though. It realizes that the goal of trying to defend your faith or trying to convince somebody is to get back to what those presuppositions are and then see who has a better system, okay? If that's all confusing, let me summarize it by saying this. A lot of times, let's say we're talking to a friend that is a Hindu or an atheist or whatever it is at work, okay? I I have a lot of friends that I work with that are Hindus and atheists at my job. And, uh, and And so let's say we're talking to those people. We have a tendency to think that I'm just gonna try to prove my case and if I'm smarter than them, it's gonna win them over. Here's what presuppositionalism would tell you to do and I think this is a much better approach. Lay all your Christian presuppositions on the table have them lay all their non-Christian presuppositions in the table and then see who has a better system. Every worldview has holes in it. There are things in Christianity I cannot answer. There are problems in Christianity I do not know how to defend, okay? But I think Christianity has less holes in it than any other worldview. So all the worldviews have problems, I just think Christianity has less problems. I think it makes more sense of the available data than do other systems. That's what I think is really, really helpful when it comes to uh, presuppositionalism. Everybody with me? Now, is this a circular argument? Is it a circular argument to say, I'm gonna defend Christianity and Christianity's true because the Bible tells me Christianity is true? And the answer is yes, but that's okay because not all circular arguments are bad. Some circular arguments, right, where your premise appeals to the conclusion before you've proven it, are bad. So if I come up to you and I say, I should be the king of America because I'd be a really great king. That's a bad circular argument, okay? But not all circular arguments are bad. Anytime you're appealing to an ultimate authority, you cannot appeal beyond that authority, okay? Right, so if you're a scientist and you say, I will only trust what my senses can perceive, You've made sense perception, your ultimate reality. You can't appeal beyond that. This is the circular argument that you're starting from. I do that with the Bible. I say the Bible's true and that's my starting point. I don't say the Bible's true because science over here or because history over here or because philosophy over here. The Bible is true and that's where I start and the Bible is what critiques everything else and is critiqued by none, okay? The Bible is what critiques everything else and is critiqued by none, So you are always, for an ultimate authority, appealing to that very authority because you can't go beyond that. If you could go beyond it, if I were to say the Bible's true because this history book, well now this history book is the standard. And so what we would say is scripture is the standard, but everybody's worldview does that. Everybody's worldview appeals to itself as the final standard of truth. Would you like an example of a circular argument that works just to prove it? Yes, great, some of you are very excited. Some of you are like, why are we doing this? Let me give you one here. Let me give you just a real great circular argument that I think everybody can agree works, okay? So, two plus two, which is four, equals four. Do you see it? All math, is simply circular arguments, all math. That's what you're doing. You're trying to say this side on the equal sign actually does equal this other thing. So notice that not all circular arguments are wrong. Some circular arguments are wrong, but some of them are right. And when you're talking about an ultimate authority, you cannot appeal beyond that authority. Cornelius Van Til again says, all reasoning is in the nature of the case, circular reasoning, the starting point, the method, and the conclusion are always involved in one another. Okay, now let me give you uh, something I just want to elaborate on that I've already talked about when it comes to defense and offense. When you're defending your faith, there is a defensive element and there is an offensive element, okay? You have a shield and you have a sword. What you are doing is you are defending Christianity and you are attacking the other person's worldview. We as Christians, when it comes to thought, when it comes to academia, when it comes to education, have been far too theologically passive, Okay. We have a tendency to always be on the defense, to think, okay, how do I answer my coworkers who are asking me about the Bible, who are asking me about the Trinity, who are asking me about uh, uh, salvation, who are asking me about justification by faith, who are asking me about hell? How do I defend? They are on the the high ground for some reason, and my job is to defend and to, to stomp out all those fiery darts, to catch them in my shield so that I can defend Christianity, okay? We have a tendency not to properly attack when we should be attacking not physically, not someone's like, why are you Christian? You're like, and you jump on them. That's not what I mean. What I mean is intellectually that we should also go on the attack. We should do what is called polemics. There are people that I have talked to in doing years and years of ministry where I have to say to that person, I've not proven Christianity to you, but here's what you can't do. Still be an atheist because this hole, this hole, this hole, this hole, this hole. So I don't care if you become a Christian. I mean, I, I do secretly, secretly, but for the sake of argument. I don't care if you become a Christian, but you can't keep being an atheist. So go think harder and come up with a better worldview and we'll have this discussion again. So we need to also go on the attack. I think sometimes that a good offense is the best defense. There are things in Christianity I don't have answers for, but I have better answers for that than any other system. So if you're in a different system, you're now on the defense and let me do that. Why aren't you asking your coworker, why do you hold a Muslim worldview because this, 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 and this? let them be on defense as well. Don't be so afraid of offending people. I know it's 2020 and that's like the blasphemy against the spirit sin of our age. But feel free, there are times to lovingly, graciously like the prophets to critique people for being stupid. Here's what I love when the prophets do. They say things like this. Hey, you cut down a tree and then you cut it the wood in half and you burn half of it in the fireplace and you make an idol of the other one and then you bow down to it. Is it fireplace wood or is it a God? Pick one and they make fun of them. Or Elijah and the prophets of Baal, of Baal, where he's like, you know, they're yelling for their gods to send down fire and they're cutting themselves and Elijah starts making fun of them. Why don't you yell louder? He even says maybe he's relieving himself, meaning he's in the bathroom, he's got the little fan on, he can't hear you, you need to yell, yell louder. And he makes fun of them, there's a time for that. Now, some of you will take that and go and be jerks to people. That's not what I'm saying you should do. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, okay? So be kind, be gracious. Be, as we've said before, a velvet-covered hammer. Don't not be a hammer, right, so that you don't have anything strong to say. But some of you take a hammer and like you take nails and spikes and like tape it to the hammer and you make it even worse. Be a velvet-covered hammer. Deliver truth strongly in a gracious way. True strongly in a gracious way. And when you go on the attack, what you need to do is you're not critiquing that person or being mean to that person. What you're doing is you're critiquing their worldview. Let me give you some examples that I think will be helpful. If someone were to hold, and just because we're doing defending the faith, later on in the semester, we'll do different world religions and we'll tell you how to refute those things. But because we're just talking about the defense for the existence of God, kind of in this first part and the truth of the Bible, let me give you some implications of an atheistic, materialistic, Evolutionary worldview that you should be able to point out to those who are atheists. Let me give you this, a few examples. If someone's an atheist, a materialist, they think the only thing that exists is physical matter, can they say sexually assaulting a child is objectively and universally wrong, or just that society frowns upon it? Can you say that assaulting a child sexually is universally and objectively wrong? or merely that society says it's wrong. We all, we've all agreed that it's wrong, but it's not actually based on anything objective. That's what you have to hold with that worldview. And a lot of people don't wanna do that. So help them. Help them see your worldview says this. Do you still wanna hold it? Do you still wanna hold it? I worked with a lady one time at a, uh, another job. It was not a church. And uh, she was a Muslim lady. And uh, she also was very pro-homosexuality. And so I had to ask her, I'm so sorry, I'm not, I didn't do this at work, right? I'm like, hey, where are those spreadsheets? By the way, I'm ready to get fired. Uh, no, we, uh, we all went out on like a company dinner or whatever and I just asked her, I was like, which, which one of those is true? So Muhammad and Islam would say that homosexuality is evil and sinful and you're claiming to be a Muslim and that homosexuality is okay, who's wrong? Who's, is homosexuality wrong or is uh, you know, the blessed prophet wrong? Which one's wrong? You gotta pick. They can't both be right. It's a contradiction. To make her start thinking through, wait a second, I don't have a coherent worldview. If you're an atheist, a materialist, can you say that homosexuality should be pursued considering that the goal of human evolution is to reproduce? Even if it's allowed, shouldn't they say it is better to pursue heterosexuality? That's the position you are stuck in if you are an atheist, A lot of atheists support the LGBTQ community despite the fact that that is not survival of the fittest. That is not fitting in with the rest of their worldview. Should you help the poor, the weak, and the sick, or should you try to get their genes out of the gene pool? Why on earth would you want to keep people with bad diseases alive so that they can have kids and keep, let's get the disease out of the gene pool for humanity, okay? The Nazis are evil. They are following the devil, but they are consistent in the way that they're thinking. If we can do eugenics, if we can get rid of bad genes, humanity as a whole will be better. And isn't that the goal if you're an atheist? Isn't that the goal if uh, evolutionary theory is true? Should women be sexually taken advantage of if they are not strong enough to defend themselves and you are trying to reproduce? Again, from a Christian worldview, the answer is no. None of these am I supporting. I'm saying they're what the atheist logically has to support, even though most of them won't. And when you sit down with somebody and show your worldview means that assaulting a child's not wrong, assaulting a woman's not wrong, killing off the poor is not wrong. Is that the worldview that you really wanna hold? Is that the right, world? is that the worldview that makes sense of most of the data that we see? Well, Zach, I just wanna look and see what happens in nature. Guess what happens in nature? Male lions rape female lions. Is that gonna be your standard of what's right and what's wrong? I like this next one. Can they trust their mind to find truth, this comes from Alvin Plantinga, if it just evolved to stay alive and not to find truth? The Christian is consistent when we trust logic, when we trust our mind, when we trust good thinking. Do you know why? Because God has made us intelligent. That's one of the things that separates us from the other animals is that we're highly intelligent. But if you're an atheist, does it make any sense to trust your mind to find truth? No, because your mind wouldn't have evolved to find truth your mind would have simply evolved to stay alive. So what you're thinking would only help you stay alive, but it wouldn't help you find truth. So the Christian is more consistent in trusting what they think than is the atheist in trusting what they think. One has a better worldview. Can they say that one's sex can be anything other than their biological birth sex without moving away from pure science? You see this with the transgenderism uh, community. Uh, Where all of a sudden people that say there is no God, we're just about science, and then you ask him, What is a woman? or What is a man? and you get all these metaphysical, kind of ethereal definitions instead of What is science? You can't hold that and hold to a materialistic worldview. If you're an atheist, you have no soul. You are just your body. Your body and your body alone determines those kind of things. Can they tell people to obey the law if someone can break the law for their advantage without being caught? Why would, you, why would you tell somebody that if you're, an, if you're an atheist? There is no you should follow the law, you, even the laws of the land. There is simply do whatever you need to as long as you don't get caught. In fact, that might be best for you and to replicate your genes. You see, what we have to do, and this, this, I just did it with the atheistic worldview, you can do it with any other religion. Take their worldview, work out the logical conclusions, show them that those logical conclusions are way more absurd than the conclusions of Christianity so that at the end of the day, even though they don't have certainty, Christianity is far more probable than our other worldviews. Everybody with me? Now, we're going to have an entire lecture coming up. I mentioned a lot about evolution. We're going to have an entire lecture uh, lecture on evolution, the origin of humanity, these kind of things coming up here in uh, in a few weeks. But for now, let's bring up Jared Lawson, who's going to answer some questions that you guys have hopefully texted in. And we will uh, have a little time of Q&A. While he's coming up here, let me pray uh, just for the recording to uh, cap that off, and then we'll have a chance for Q&A. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you that you are uh, good and that you love us, and I pray that you would uh, take what we've learned and you would help us. I pray that we would be more aware of our presuppositions. The next time we go to tweet or to text or to post something on Facebook or Instagram, the next time we're thinking about voting, the next time we're having a conversation with a coworker, that we would stop for a second and say, why do I believe this? Is this right? What's the strongest case I can make against this? Whatever it might be. I pray that we would be loving to those who are lost. We confess that you have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Would you help us love sinners like you do? May we not see lost people as our enemy because they're not, our enemy's not flesh and blood. May we know that our enemy is the devil. It's demons, it's powers and principalities that have bad theology, that, uh, that are not thinking rightly. Would you help us? We ask all this in the holy name of Christ, amen.